Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Medicine Path is an ongoing series of intimate and engaging conversations exploring the intersections of spirituality, psychology, and psychedelics, with the intention of providing inspiration and guidance as we walk together on this journey of individual and collective healing and transformation. This podcast is entirely listener-supported, and there are many ways to contribute. You can make a one-time donation via PayPal, become a monthly Patreon subscriber, leave a review on iTunes, or share it with your friends. You can find out more at medicinepathpodcast.com forward slash support. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with Dr. Ben Sessa, who has been at the forefront of researching psychedelic therapy in the UK for over a decade. His current focus is on research into MDMA-assisted therapy for trauma and alcohol addiction. I was excited to talk with Ben for a few reasons. Firstly, he's probably the only researcher who's been a test subject in neurological research into the effects of MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, DMT, and ketamine. Secondly, he's a licensed psychiatrist who has over 20 years experience working with children and teenagers, which gives him a unique insight into the effects of childhood pain and trauma and how psychedelics can be useful in helping adults recover from trauma-related disorders. And lastly, I find Ben to not only be very knowledgeable, but also relatable, funny, and often quite outspoken. 
all of which adds up to an incredibly deep, informative, and insightful conversation. Before we get to that, I just want to mention that I'll be presenting my book, Yoga and Plant Medicine, at Magic City in Brooklyn, New York, on Saturday, November 16th. So far, I've held readings and discussions in Toronto, Ottawa, Vancouver, and Victoria, Canada, and it's been an incredibly fun and rewarding experience to share my little book with real live people. The conversations following the readings have been very rich, and it's been great to hear what people are interested in and what they're challenged by at this stage in the so-called psychedelic renaissance. I'm looking forward to more of that in the future, and you can find out more about upcoming events on my website, brianjames.ca, or follow me on Instagram at brianjames.medicinepath. Okay, that's all for now. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Ben Sessa on The Medicine Path. I'm here with Dr. Ben Sessa. Hey, Ben, thanks a lot for joining me on The Medicine Path. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, Brian, for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you on. Um, Out of all the people doing psychedelic research these days, I think I found you to be the most relatable. Uh, I find you like really down to earth and I appreciate your sense of humor. And something tells me that we share some commonalities in our background. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could just give the listeners a little bit of your background story and how you came to do the work that you're doing today. Sure. So um, I grew up in a very left-wing liberal family uh, with a lot of sort of hippie values. My parents were both teachers and writers and artists. And uh, so I was exposed to a lot of kind of hippie subculture as a child. No drugs, actually. No one was doing any drugs as far as I know. But, you know, I, I read a lot. I knew all about Ginsburg and Leary and Kerouac and all of the beat stuff um, as a teenager. And then as a teenager, I had some psychedelic experiences myself. Um, and then uh, I went to med school. Um, I was 18 in 1990. So just as the rave scene was kind of breaking, I went to medical school in London, studied and trained as a doctor, um, and then specialized in psychiatry. And when I started working in psychiatry, because I knew all about Humphrey Osmond and uh, Aldous Huxley and Stan Groff and all of the work that was done in the 50s and early 60s with psychedelics, and I knew that psychedelics were, the history of them showed that they were going to be the next big thing in psychiatry. And it was a, a major topic of, it wasn't considered controversial back then. It was mainstream psychiatry. Um, and then, of course, it all collapsed and got banned and became a popular drug cultural thing. But, you know, I knew of the medical impact of psychedelics. And so I would ask my psychiatry tutors as a, as a trainee, you know, what can you tell me about this? You know, what do you know about LSD psychotherapy? And they'd all say, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Um, LSD is a dangerous, addictive drug. If you ever have a patient on LSD, then the treatment is to strap them to a table and inject them with sedatives, you know. And I said, well, you don't know that there was this whole history? And nobody did. So I wrote a review editorial for the British Journal of Psychiatry in 2004 when I was still a trainee, and it got published. And that was the first 
um, mainstream medical publication about psychedelics in the British press since the 60s. Um, and at that point, it kind of opened a whole can of worms for me. And, I, and then I went to uh, conferences in 2006 and 2008 in Basel, met with the MAPS crew, met with the Hefter crew, and very quickly found myself in a pretty small back then community, certainly in terms of medics. I mean, I was the only medic in the UK that was doing anything like this. Um, so that was my pathway, really. Started with the literature and music, then personal experiences, then psychiatry, and then this desire to kind of bring the topic back to doctors of my generation, because it seemed to have been sort of whitewashed from the medical curriculum. And so that, that first editorial I wrote was, was really just to say, you know, this did happen in psychiatry, and it's now happening again, because this is just as the, the map stuff was really taking off. And, you know, and I, I, I fell into this, this world of psychedelic research, and it was really, it was great, because it was very easy to get publications, because it was such an unusual topic. You know, if I was trying to write publications about SSRIs in medical journals, I would have been a, a very small fish in a very big sea. But because I was the only person submitting papers on psychedelics they all got published so it was great for my career um and that's how i did it mm. so when you got into uh psychiatry back in the 90s did you already have did you foresee that you would be somehow integrating psychedelics into psychiatry even back then that's a really good question brian for the first few years i was doing it um it was quite a struggle because my tutors and my bosses um, were anxious about what I was doing and what I was publishing because, you know, I was having to publish under the name of their academic department or their clinical department and they were supportive and I'd be going on conferences and things and writing these articles and getting them published, but they were anxious. And so it, for several years, I kind of oscillated between it being um, a hobby, but not a career. Um, but then what's happened in the last five years, um, since I've got grants to actually do the psychedelic research, um, that's been great because I've, I've actually, it's not just been a hobby that I would write about at the weekends. It's become my paid job. Mm. Now it's my entire job. So I, I work salaried with psychedelics full time. So there, there was this transition period where it was a bit fragile and difficult but, um, you know, I've, I've kind of engineered it carefully to make this my full-time work now, which is fab. Yeah, congratulations. Now, um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, what kinds of psychedelics you've been working with and what kinds of studies you've been involved with. So I, I, I don't know if you know of Professor David Nutt. He's quite a big figure here in the UK. Um, sort of president of the British Psychological um, British Association of Psychopharmacology and uh, various large, well-known bodies like that. And he's um, I joined him first in 2006 when he was in Bristol, um, and then he subsequently moved to Imperial, where he's where he has run the psychedelic work there. And so I've been involved in all of these um, primarily neuroscientific studies um, since the late since about 2009 um i was involved in the the uk's first human psychopharmacology study since the 60s in fact 
I became the first person to be legally administered a psychedelic drug since the 60s when I was injected with intravenous psilocybin by David Nutt in 2009. So we've done all of these neuroscience studies. So neuroimaging studies with psilocybin and then LSD and then subsequently with DMT. Um, so these were not clinical studies. These are studies on healthy subjects using imaging to explore the neural correlates of the psychedelic experience in order to shed some light on the neurophysiology of consciousness itself. So those are science studies, not clinical. And then in the last five years, I've, I've been setting up and running and now almost finished um, the world's first MDMA-assisted psychotherapy study to treat an addiction. And so... Um, and the UK's first MDMA study of any kind. Um, and now we've just started a psilocybin depression study here in Bristol. So at the moment, I'm doing clinical work with both psilocybin and MDMA. Um, and the future holds all sorts of new things as well. Mm -hmm. So as a psychiatrist now, uh, what kind of training have you had in psychotherapy and how much is psychotherapy or talk therapy part of your work with clients? Um, so I've, I'm not a official psychotherapist. I'm a psychiatrist, but like a lot of psychiatrists, um, over the years, you're exposed to many different sorts of models of psychotherapy. And, you know, I, I, I have my own analysis for five years. Um, I've done courses in all the different sorts of models um, and I have my own practice, private practice with psychotherapy patients. So I, I carry out normal non-psychedelic, um, non-drug assisted psychotherapy in my private practice. I would be called by the psychotherapy community, uh, what they would call an eclectic psychotherapist. So I'm not wedded to any particular model, but rather, um, I use my experience, uh, my clinical experience was having seen so many hundreds, if not thousands of patients over the last 20 years. Um, but I wouldn't be able to call myself a psychotherapist because they're quite um, guarded about that, obviously. Um, but I do do psychotherapy and I have patients in therapy with this eclectic model. Mm. And could you give us an idea of what the focus is when you're working with someone in a psychotherapeutic context? Yeah, so all of the jobs that I've done over certainly over the last 10 years and they've been quite a disparate group of different um jobs. I've worked with uh in the PTSD service with combat vets. I've worked with children and adolescents because I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist by training. Um in secure settings, offenders in prison. Um I've been for the last seven years working as a consultant psychiatrist in the adult addiction service. Um, and all of these things are all underpinned by the concept of trauma. And what I really specialize in is that developmental trajectory from child abuse and maltreatment into adult mental disorders and particularly addictions. So although it sounds as though my job plan is all over the place with lots of different things, it all makes sense in my head because the one thing that underpins all of it is this developmental trajectory from childhood to adulthood and the impact of child abuse on subsequent adult mental disorder. Mm -hmm. And so what's the role that psychedelics can play in psychotherapy that is focused on resolving childhood trauma? 
Childhood trauma is very difficult to treat. And childhood trauma underpins so many mental disorders. All the anxiety disorders uh, like phobias and um, generalized anxiety disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder, all of the addictions, um, many of the affective disorders like depression, it's highly influential on personality disorder. So the impact of child maltreatment and abuse on adult mental disorder is huge. Um, and so my focus is very much upon what are the tools that we currently have to treat trauma? And what, what's emerged for me over the 20 years of clinical practice is that the current mechanisms we have are very poor. They, they tend to treat the overlying symptoms, but not the cause. So the cause being trauma. And when we dose patients on a daily basis with SSRIs and mood stabilizers and antipsychotics and hypnotic drugs, what we're doing is just treating the overlying symptoms. And so one of the things that really spurs me on in my work with psychedelics is that for me, they represent the most effective, safe, fast um, form of psychotherapy we have using drug assisted treatment. So it's, although, you know, people look at psychedelics as a drug quite rightly in the concept of psychiatry, psychedelic psychotherapy is much more aligned with psychotherapy than it is with psychopharmacology. We're using the drug one, two, maybe three times as part of a course of non-drug assisted psychotherapy to facilitate the psychotherapy. So I, I see this as pharmacology, but I see this as clever, focused, modern, effective psychopharmacology. It really is the antithesis of daily maintenance treatment with these other drugs that don't cure them. They don't cure the patient. They just mask the symptoms and help them to function a bit better, which is arguably a reasonable thing to do. But I think that patients really now are really starting to stand up and say, you know, after 30, 40 years of SSRIs, what else have you got in that drug cabinet of yours? Because I've been sitting on this drug for 30 years and I ain't any better. Do I have to just keep taking it forever? Yeah. And, and the best thing that psychiatry can say is, yes, I'm afraid so. No, I don't think that's good enough. And I think that psychedelic drug-assisted psychotherapy offers a whole new paradigm uh, in terms of how we look at treating mental disorders and moving away from this maintenance therapy model. Um, I often say that psychiatry is a very desperate and lonely place to work sometimes. We have become like palliative care doctors. We, we, we don't use the cure word. We've kind of accepted our limitations that all we can do is get alongside someone for life. I think we can do better than that. I think psychiatry should be like orthopedics. Get them in, mend the broken bone and get them out. If you say that to most psychiatrists, you know, I want to take a 25-year-old with PTSD and I want to cure them and never see them again, they'll think you're a bit crazy. They'll be like, oh, you can't really do that. We'll still be following them up for decades. Why? You know, and the reason why is because we're not using our pharmacology and our psychotherapy effectively. But psychedelics, for me, seem to be the best option we have to really change that practice. Hmm. And in, in your view, what happens in the person when they experience trauma that leads to all the symptoms that you talked about? Yeah. So this all comes back to attachment. And 
that those early years of life become the blueprint for um, your human psyche. The fundamental things, what is love, what is trust, what is a parent, is it good to hurt people, is it good to cheat, is it good to lie, um, is the world a safe place, are people out to hurt me or are people out to help me, those, those early narratives form as a result of your environment. So if you grow up in an environment as a, as a young child, an under five-year-old, where you're loved and you're kissed and you're cuddled and you're played with and you're praised, then you develop a very positive outlook on the world and a very positive sense of self-narrative. I'm worthy. I'm a good person. I can achieve. If you've grown up in an environment where you're kicked and punched and burned and raped, you understandably develop strong psychological defenses it's, it's not in your interest to trust people. If you trust people, they're just going to exploit you. So you develop these hard defensive shells, which then in some ways are a sign of a healthy brain. You know, you, you'd be a mug to trust your, chair, your caregiver because they're hurting you. So you don't trust them and then you don't trust anyone else. So although these are kind of neuroprotective mechanisms for the very young child, as they grow in through adolescence and then into adulthood, they become very maladaptive and antisocial traits and then develop into adult mental disorders. So in answer to your question, those early years have a profound effect on who we are as a person and how we see um, subjective reality. Hmm. And would you agree that it doesn't um, necessarily take an overt kind of traumatic experience like abuse uh, to um, to cause the same kind of disconnection in the person? Can it be more subtle forms of trauma? Absolutely. And I always I always talk about this when I'm doing my talks. Um, you know, people often think of abuse as the, the biggies, physical abuse and sexual abuse, the stuff that hits the social services radar. What I always say is don't take your eye off the ball when it comes to emotional abuse and neglect. Um, I've worked with so many people who've been profoundly unwell in terms of personality development or, or adult mental disorder. And, you know, we've assumed, that, you know, they must have been raped, they must have been beaten, and often not. It's, it's that emotional abuse that can really damage you. Um, I don't love you. Your dad doesn't love you either. We didn't want a boy. We wanted a girl. No one will ever love you. You're stupid. You're thick. You're never going to amount to anything. You're worthless. You're a slut. You deserve to be exploited. It's your fault. You know, no one's being punched. No one's being raped. But that kind of language is profoundly disturbing to a child's development. Um, it's arguable, in fact, there's some interesting studies that show this, that that kind of emotional abuse is worse than physical or sexual abuse in some cases. If a child has a good positive attachment and a warm, loving family and home, then they could weather and be resilient against a discrete episode of physical or sexual abuse. So that attachment aspect without the big T trauma is hugely important. Um, so it's a good question. Mm. And so tracking back to your current research, how do psychedelics help us to deal with the, these original wounds? Um, it all comes down to their ability to tackle the rigidity and fixed aspect of these narratives once they've formed. Um, most mental disorders can be, think, can be thought of as a kind of psychological 
rigidity. Um, because as I say, you form those narratives in order to protect yourself and stay alive. And, and they become very fixed. So I, I have a patient before me who will say, I'm useless, I'm worthless, I'm a failure. And sometimes I just want to shake my patients and say, you're wrong about yourself. You're not useless. You're not a failure. I'm really sorry that you were told that when you were two years old by the person who should have been loving you, but they were wrong to do that. But it's not that easy. It's, a, it's like someone coming to me and saying, you know what, Ben, you're not actually a nice guy. You're a horrible, mean, evil guy and everyone hates you and don't trust anyone because they're all out to get you. I wouldn't believe someone if they said that because that's just not my experience of the world. So why would my patients trust me when I say it's the other way around? What psychedelics do more than any other tool I've come across is this ability to rewrite these narratives, reboot the brain, and allow you to rebrand yourself, allow you to say, and this is particularly with MDMA that we've seen recently, I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. There's so much love in me. There's so much I can give. I realize now that it's not my fault and I don't have to hold on to those old ideals. And so the psychedelic experience becomes this platform for the patient to then begin this process of healing. Now, it's not miraculous. There are no miracles in, in, in mental health or anywhere else. But they are, from what I can see, the best, most effective platform we have from which to start the healing process. Um, and in terms of a mechanism of how they do this, I mean, say classic psychedelic like a psilocybin, the, it, it strips away what we call the ego defenses, and it has this ego dissolution effect, um, whereby all of these narratives that you hold are suddenly up for grabs. Um, you know, I'm no longer a man. I'm no longer a body. I'm no longer Ben. I'm no longer a person. There's no longer such a thing as gravity. There's no longer such a thing as right angles or three-dimensional space. There's no longer such a thing as time. When you lose those kinds of fundamental narratives, the little things like I'm a bit of a useless person are really easy to shed. Hmm. So what I'm saying is the psychedelics strip away so much of all of these labels that we use to describe ourselves in the world that it gives you then an opportunity when they come back and you rebuild the, the person as they come out of the experience to adopt new labels so they can rebrand these narratives that were so negative. Hmm. Um, now, of course, that stripping away of labels is a very frightening thing to do. We need labels. You know, I, I like to know that I've got a physical body and I like to know that I mustn't step out in front of a bus because it'll knock me down. If I, if we couldn't possibly all walk around all day just believing we're nothing but particles of energy and white light, you know, that's why you can't stay high all the time. You'd get run over by a bus. But having those holidays away from reality every now and then to just remind you that you mustn't get too hung up on fixed labels because they are all up for grabs, um, is very, very healthy. And when combined as part of a structured psychotherapeutic course in which you work through particular issues, it's immensely powerful, powerful clinically. Hmm. Yeah. It's making me remember like, so I've never, uh, had any formal psychedelic psychotherapy but I've had therapeutic psychedelic experiences. And 
I think, you know, something that I hear a lot of in the psychedelic therapy world these days is the focus on trauma. And I think often that we can become trauma-seeking missiles in a way that it's like that old saying, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Like if you're a trauma therapist, everything looks like trauma and trauma is the key. Um, but I remember um, an experience I had with MDMA with my wife around a campfire one night when uh, I felt it was time for us to have a reconnection. We were going through a period of kind of stress and upheaval in our life. And it was just one of those times where I felt, well, we got to come together and let me use this. And interestingly, it wasn't that in that experience, I was confronted with all the trauma I'd experienced in my life, but it was actually the opposite where I was reminded of all the times that I was appreciated and supported and all the people who had shown me love and acceptance. And that actually helped me to broaden my narrative of my childhood, not so focused on all the traumatic experience that I felt had formed me, but seeing that actually, in fact, there were all of these people in my life who were loving and supportive. Mm -hmm. And I felt that that was actually very therapeutic and quite transformative. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and MDMA particularly is, is good at this. And one of the things, like I said, that comes out of it is, um, and this is going to sound a bit hippie-ish, which is not my normal style, um, that people kind of connect with their heart and they look inside and they come to the realization that they are good and that there is good in their life and that dwelling on the negative, um, I often say to patients, you know, it takes just as much effort to be miserable as it does to be happy. And if you look at people who are miserable and negative about themselves and the world and everything's a hassle, they really have to work at that. It's a full-time job to remain negative, but they do it. And, and just like you described so beautifully, Brian, the MDMA experience really reminds you that actually there's a lot of love in our lives. And, you know, I, I, I don't believe in evil, for example. I, I don't believe that there are bad people. I don't believe anybody is evil. I think everybody is hurt or damaged in some way if they behave in, in a way like that. You know, only hurt people hurt. If you meet someone who's a nice, open-minded, happy person, you can bet a hundred bucks that they've had a good childhood. And it's because someone's told them that they're lovely, nice, kind, gentle people. And when you meet someone who's mean and horrible and dishonest and arrogant, the thing to say to them is, who hurt you? Someone mm -hmm. hurt you, didn't they? Um, and invariably they'll, well, they may be very defensive, but that will be the case. So it's, 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 not, it's not rocket science. Look after kids, make them feel good and special and happy and important and worthy, and they'll turn into good, happy, confident, secure adults. Um, it really is as simple as that. Mm. Yeah, and I would say that um, just to add that when you meet someone who's open and loving and easy to be around, it's not necessarily that they've had a great childhood, a supportive childhood full of positive attachment and everything, but it may mean that they've done their healing along the way, that they didn't get everything they needed in their childhood, but they've had an opportunity to do some mm. healing work along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the thing, and this is why I can do my job, because otherwise 
a lot of this talk sounds very negative and fatalistic. It's a bit like saying to someone, I'm really sorry, you screwed up the first five years of your life. You're screwed now. Um, if I believed that, I wouldn't be able to do my job. I do believe it is, of course you can heal. And of course you, there's capacity for change um, through all sorts of different methods. And the, the good thing about the human psyche is that even when you've had negative attachments, it doesn't take that much to then get back on your feet with some positive attachments. Um, give people a sense of meaning and worth and give people a sense of purpose. I, I say to my patients, I, I want to prescribe for you um, three self-esteem boosting experiences a day. Um, take them and fill it, finish the course. You know, you need to, you need to achieve. And when you start feeling a sense of achievement, you start getting better and better at it. But it's really difficult because, like I said, the way the brain development works, there's actual physical brain changes within um, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex that occur in those early years of life according to your experiences. So it, it, it does become very difficult because these things become very rigidly ingrained. And patients, understandably, are very distrustful because that's how they've survived. They've, they've got as far as they have by not trusting people. So it takes an awful lot for them to let down their defenses and guards, which is why so many of these mental disorders become chronic and lifelong mm. because they simply can't do the therapy. Um, and this is where psychedelics come in. They have this loosening effect that allows a person to strip back their defenses and then build them back up again with a positive narrative. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes of the image of uh, someone behind a, a wall and it's really hard when you're behind that wall to know what lies on the other side and what can happen with psychedelic or mystical experiences is you get a taste of the freedom that's possible for you. Mm. And it and feels great. It feels great. So it's affirming. And it also lets you know that there's another possibility for you in your life. Yeah. I mean, some, yeah. sometimes on MDMA, a patient will say to me, oh, man, this is so beautiful. I feel so at peace. Is this, is this what love feels like? Mm. And I say, well, yeah, it does. And, you know, a cynic would say, well, this isn't love. This is a drug-induced transient experience. And indeed it is. And no one can argue with that. It is a drug-induced transient experience and it will wear off. But if you're a person who's never experienced that level of serenity, you know, from the day you were born, you felt fear and distrust and pain. And you've never had that peace and that inner sense of calm. Then even if it's only for six hours, it's very valuable to give that person that experience and say, this is what it feels like to feel comfortable. This is what it feels like to not be fearful of the world. And now you've had this experience, transient and drug-induced that it is, you know what to aim for. And you know that you can achieve this. And then we start the hard process of the lifestyle changes. And this is what's so important. Drugs, psychedelic therapies are not a panacea. They're not a magic wand. They do wear off, but they become an essential platform from which you can then make the lifestyle changes and then, uh, and then change permanently. Yeah. And I think that's so um, integral to my approach with people is I call it keeping the eye on the prize. Uh, it's giving someone a, a positive reference point to focus on 
on their healing journey, something to give them faith and hope and not, not focusing on what's going wrong, but what's innately right about them. And I just, I just find that approach, uh, I guess much more positive and, um, uplifting to be focused on that rather than on what's going wrong. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I'm interested in the approach that you take in the psychotherapy when you're doing these clinical trials with people. So with the MDMA study that we're doing at the moment, um, it's uh, unique because it's not been done before with addicts. Um, most of the MDMA work, as you know, is MAPS study with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and our study is not a MAPS-sponsored study. It's independent and it's in a new condition, addiction. So when people often ask me, what is the therapeutic model you use? Um, and I, I can give them two answers. The first is a very lazy answer, but actually accurate. Um, the model we use is called MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for alcohol use disorder. And we're making it up because it's yeah. never been done before. So, but that's actually perfectly accurate to answer that question in that way. Um, one day we'll get around to writing a manual, and but you know at the moment it's never been done, so there is no path to follow. Mm. Um, now a slightly more nuanced answer. Obviously, we we take a lot from the maps PTSD approach. It's a very transpersonal approach. It's a very non-directive, client-led approach. But because we're working with addiction, we also use a lot in the way of motivational interviewing, uh, motivational therapy approach, um, a lot in the way of relapse prevention in terms of recognizing triggers and uh, for relapse and that kind of thing. On the day of the MDMA, because um, our current course is it's an eight-week course of psychotherapy, weekly sessions, two of which are MDMA-assisted on weeks three and six sandwiched between non-drug sessions. So pretty standard protocol for psychedelic therapies. Um, This is what's so important about psychedelic therapies. It's not just the drug day. Just taking the drug alone um, is is at best ineffective and at worst harmful. Um, You really have to have the non-drug preparation sessions and the non-drug post-drug integration sessions. Um, On the day of the drug, it's, it's very non-directive. The patient spends a lot of time, what we call going inside with headphones on and eye shades, being with the medicine. And again, this is going to sound quite hippie-ish, but what's really interesting is the MDMA seems to know where to go. So the patient may come with the preparation sessions with a certain agenda. You know, I'm, I want to think about my brother. Um, but then on the day, they may find that the MDMA takes them in a different direction and they they have all sorts of other thoughts and feelings. Um, so the model is the model is not well formed. It's you know we're we're in the we're in the embryology stage of psychedelic therapies in medicine, and we're still forming protocols and manuals as to how we're going to use it. But MDMA and psilocybin they have they have a lot in common and they also have differences. Um, I hope that answers the question somewhat. Mm, yeah, I think it's given me a better picture of uh, of the approach. Um, something that I'm really interested in is the you know you're doing these studies, 
And a big factor in any kind of psychotherapy is the therapeutic relationship itself. And if you're working with the same psychotherapist with every patient, I'm wondering uh, how much that variable plays into the outcome and if that's something that you're looking at. Like perhaps that that psychotherapist isn't the best fit for that particular client and that's going to affect the outcome. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess so. I mean, I would say I would go further from what you said that, you know, the, the therapeutic relationship is important. It is the most important thing. And psychologists would possibly disagree with me here. Um, but I don't think there's a lot of difference between most of the models, whether it's CBT or DBT or IPT or CAT or EMDR or trauma-focused psychotherapy or exposure therapy or psychodynamic therapy or psychoanalytical therapy. By far the most important factor in all of those is the therapeutic relationship. At the end of the day, all psychotherapy boils down to that old wives' tale. A problem shared is a problem halved. And it's about sitting down in a room with someone you trust that you can talk to about difficult, painful things that you can't tell other people. That's kind of what it is. All counseling and psychotherapy boils down to that, in my experience. And the trappings on the outside of whether it's CBT or DBT or psychodynamic are somewhat minor compared to that. If you cannot sit in that room with that person and trust them enough to talk about your issues, it ain't going to work, whatever model you use. So affecting that positive relationship is essential. And, you know, myself and my co-therapist, Dr. Higbed, and she's brilliant, you know, we, I don't know, I don't know what the secret is or what the magic is, but we work really well together. Um, I really like the duo of male and female therapists, co-therapists. I've done a lot as a child psychiatrist, I've done a lot of family therapy and systemic therapy. So working as a team and it's really satisfying the way that Laurie and I work. Um, we, we work off each other as well as with the patient. So for example, in family therapy, I might turn to her and say, you know, we may have say a 15 year old girl and her parents in therapy with us. And I, I might say to Laurie, Hmm. When Jane said that, I got the feeling that she's got a real problem with her dad. And then Laurie will say, oh, I don't know, actually, it, it didn't feel like that to me. It was more like this. And then she'll jump in and say, no, 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 I'll tell you what it was is this. And then the dad will jump in. Yeah, but what I'm trying to say is that. So you almost work off each other in a kind of good cop, bad cop type routine. But it's very transparent. And it's, it's a wonderful way of allowing people to express their feelings. Um, the, 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 the term that's often used is a, a positive, curious regard. So just being interested in what the patient has to say, never judgmental, never critical, there's no right or wrong. The feelings are paramount. If someone has an emotion and a feeling, it can't be wrong because they're having it. Um, now, it may be that the way in which they're expressing it is not advantageous to them and cutting their wrists and taking overdoses and breaking plates and slamming doors is arguably not the right behavior for them to progress but you can't say that their feelings are wrong and their their emotions are wrong because you can't have a wrong emotion you either have an emotion or you don't have an emotion and so psychedelic psychotherapy in a pair 
with a pair of therapists is a very powerful tool for giving the patient the platform to feel free to express themselves however they want and helping them to see what methods of behavior are most effective for them and which are somewhat maladaptive. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, as you're describing this way of working with another therapist, I'm getting the image of, uh, you know, if we, if we think of the therapist as a mirror that's helping the client to see things about themselves that they can't see on their own because they're in it, you know, they're too close to it. Then having two therapists there would be like having two mirrors in the room. So you're going to get a different angle and you're going to see a, a fuller picture perhaps. Yeah. And also, and as I said, the mirrors speak to each other. Right. So it's not just two people firing questions at this poor patient. Yeah. They're also talking to each other about the patient. And that gives the patient the opportunity to jump in and say, no, 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 you've got me wrong there. What I'm really trying to say is this. And then you say, ah, okay, right, now I understand. So it's really interesting. Like every patient I've had in psychotherapy, you, 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 just can't just, I kind of know what's going on in the very first session. And I could tell the patient that. I could say, what I think is going on is the way your dad treated you resulted in the way you treated your brother and your mother behaved like this, and this is now why you have an eating disorder. I could say all that in the first session, but there'd be no point because they wouldn't hear it. But then over the next 12 months, they slowly answer these questions themselves. And so you're kind of, you, you allow the patient to take you on a journey to unravel their problems for themselves. And although you may have hit the nail on the head in session one, you can't just tell the patient, they're not going to change. So it's a process of slowly unraveling their history. The other thing I always say to patients is, in the first session, well, first I always say, I work for you. Um, you are the boss, not me. I have no idea what's wrong with you. You're going to tell me what's wrong with you over the next six months. Um, and, uh, and you give them the power and you give them the ownership over the relationship. And you always show this positive, curious regard and a deep sense of respect and a deep privilege to be alongside them. Mm. Um, and then they heal themselves, which is the only way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. When you're talking about how uh, it's not the modality that is, is doing the work. Um, you know, I was thinking of how the modalities really are like the vehicle that you're traveling in with this person, you're on a journey together and it doesn't really matter so much whether it's a, a car or a plane or a train. It's really about what's happening between those two people who are in the vehicle. And yeah. I love this client centered approach and it's kind of like the client is in the driver's seat and you're along for the ride and maybe pointing out some landmarks along the way, things that you notice that they haven't noticed themselves. Mm. Yeah. That's a nice analogy. Yeah. And going back to the therapeutic relationship, I'm glad that you said that because it, it's my belief as well. And I, you know, I think it's been backed up by some studies actually that the therapeutic relationship is the most important aspect yeah. of, of healing. Um, and I can think that one of the things that uh, allows psych psychedelics to potentiate therapy 
is that it's opening us up and it's helping us to let down our guard and it's allowing for a deeper therapeutic relationship. Yeah. It's, um, it, it lets down the guard because, you know, by the time you meet a patient in their thirties, forties or fifties, and they have a heroin addiction or an, uh, an alcohol addiction or crack cocaine addiction, or they have PTSD or severe phobias or severe anxiety, they have become absolute experts at defense. You know, they, everything they do, every living, breathing moment of their day is based around never going there to that memory of when they were eight years old and their grandfather came into their bedroom that night. And so when they sit down with a traditional psychotherapist that says, you know, tell me about your rape, they're out the door, they flee, they go back to the vodka, back to the heroin, because they, they can't even take on the idea of thinking about that, never mind talking about it, because they've become experts at avoidance. So the psychedelic puts them into a position where they can safely go there. So in some ways, psychedelics or MDMA are not that magical or special. All they do is put you into a position in which you can then do the work um, that 50% of people can't do. So things like PTSD, it has a 50% treatment resistance. For 50% of people, tell me about your rape, does work. And they get upset and they get distressed and they cry and slowly over the weeks and months, they learn to manage their feelings and to um, not be overwhelmed by them and they can slowly resolve and put the issue to bed. That's fine for half of cases. But the other half that are too defended um, and they just dissociate and, and cut off when asked to recall painful trauma memories. They, can, they, they never get cured by the, by the treatments. And instead they take these tablets every day, day in, day out to just suppress the symptoms. But the psychedelic moves that 50% treatment resistant group into the 50% treatable group by providing a mental state which is safe and containing to go there. And it's quite remarkable seeing people do this on MDMA, you know, saying, I haven't talked about this for 45 years. I've carried this around for 45 years and I've never spoken about that night. And here I am on MDMA and I can talk about it in great detail. And before I couldn't even utter the word rape. And now I can tell you exactly what happened. And the MDMA protects them from being overwhelmed by the negative affect that normally comes from recall of those memories. So then they do the work, and this is the crucial thing, Brian, you don't have to be high any, anymore. You don't have to keep taking MDMA. You've done the work on the MDMA, you've put the stuff to bed, and now you don't need the MDMA. You've done the work. So that's really how it works. Mm. Now, a big part of my experience and my work with people is uh, helping people get back in touch with their body. Cause I think one of the things that can often happen when someone's gone through a traumatic experience or lived in a traumatic environment um, is like you talked about the rigidity of the psyche is one of the effects, yeah. effects of trauma. And I find that that happens in the body as well. Like people can either become completely disconnected from their body because it's too painful to go there. Uh, or they build up like an armoring, like Wilhelm Reich talked about this armoring, this, uh, rigidity in the body. And especially with men, uh, doing things like bodybuilding in order to build themselves up 
to as a defense mechanism from getting hurt. Now, what's the role of somatics or body work in the the therapy or the, specifically the psychedelic psychotherapy that you're engaged in? Is there a place for that? It's a very important part of the work. Um, you know, if you think about the the theory action, this amygdala driven theory action. Um, so when the amygdala is stimulated by a fearful stimulus of some kind, uh, you know, a, a threat, it triggers a hormonal response, which people call fight, flight, freeze. And this is a very physical reaction. You know, it, 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 the hormones, um, epinephrine and, and cortisol course around the body and they physically prepare you to either fight if you're able, or if you're too scared to simply run away, flight, or if you're even more scared to just freeze on the spot. So it, it, that's the hierarchy. And that's a inherently physical reaction. So all fear and all trauma, psychological fear and trauma, is rooted in a physical body reaction. So it's no surprise that people with a history of psychological trauma have, they, they feel this in their body. It's held in the body. And so MDMA psychotherapy work does involve a lot of um, body work where needed, not with everyone. Um, the way we do it is we say to the patients, you know, there may be a role for this. And in the preparation sessions, we talk about what appropriate touch would be and what the safeguardings are and what the boundaries are. And some people really benefit from that touch. Um, I'm not a touch therapist. Um, I'm a psychotherapist, but, um, the use of touch in MDMA psychotherapy is very important. And we do employ that at times. Hmm. And do you encourage people to engage in embodied practices like yoga or Tai Chi? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we say, um, as we get to the end of the course and they've, they've had their second MDMA session in the following weeks after that, it's very much about what can you do in terms of your lifestyle that can put you back into this state again. And obviously, so meditation, yoga, Pilates, um, just general exercise, all of these things, we encourage those because <clears throat> they're not going to relive the MDMA experience with the same quantity, but they can find that inner healing place, that quiet, serene place that they experience for those six hours on MDMA through these other lifestyle practices. So it's a very important part of going forward. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess um, kind of following the thread of our conversation, coming to this question about integration. And first of all, how do you, I mean, this is a word that we use a lot and I've got my own personal view of what that means, but I'm interested in what integration means to you and what you recommend or prescribe to people who come through your studies. Yeah. So what, what integration means to me is what, what meaning can we now make of this experience? You know, you've, you've had this brief six hours in which for the first time in your life, you don't feel like a useless, worthless person. And the drug's going to wear off. What can we do to help you to remember those six hours and realize that the glimpse you had of that person is not just some drug-fueled illusion? It is the real you. And actually, I had, I had a patient that I saw this morning, and she's, she did MDMA last week, and we had this exact conversation. It was about, um, you know, she says, uh, 
I now see myself as a different person. And so she's still going to have the same everyday scrapes and hassles and uh, dysfunctional dynamics with, with her family that have been going on for years and years. But she can see them in another way now. And, you know, MDMA particularly, and its effect on empathy, its ability to see, see the good in other people, especially around trauma. You know, it's quite remarkable when you have a patient who says something like on MDMA, you know, I, I can't forgive what my dad did to me when I was six years old, but he must have been in a really, really bad place to do that to his daughter. Now, that's, a, that's the most amazing statement of empathy. You know, you can be in traditional psychotherapy for 20 years before you can say something like that. Mm, mm-hmm. And people can do it on MDMA. They, the fear is switched off and their capacity to put themselves in someone else's shoes and empathize, even with their assailant, is a deeply healing experience. I guess it's what Christians would call forgiveness. Um, and it's a very, very powerful healing experience because that's letting go of this rigidity, you know, that I must always feel like this. It's my lot in life. The fact that they glimpse this for a few precious hours becomes a platform for I don't have to think like this. There is another way. I can rebrand myself. And then when they come up against the everyday stresses of life, so, you know, there's a queue at the post office, normally they'd rant and rave and shout. They'd, they'd go like, oh, well, queue at the post office. Mm-hmm. So it's about helping them to put themselves back into that mental state where everything was beautiful and lovely and warm and serene. And it really does work because they've glimpsed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I I think for forgiveness to be authentic, there has to be that empathy or compassion first. Otherwise it's just a put on. Mm. Yeah. Um, So I know that you've, uh, you've, you've been a participant in a lot of these studies at the outset. And so you've had, uh, you know, as a patient or as a, I don't know, a subject, you've undergone, uh, what ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, anything else that I'm missing? There? Um, yes. So over the years, I've variously been injected with intravenous LSD, intravenous ketamine, intravenous DMT, intravenous psilocybin, and oral ketamine and oral MDMA. So I mean, uh, the research group at Imperial, because it's all on healthy subjects and not clinical studies, uh, we kind of those of us that study doctors administering the drug also on other days had been the healthy subjects receiving the drug. Um, and, you know, I'm also quite happy to say on record that I've had uh, illegal drug experiences. Um, I think it would be disingenuous to say anything else. Um, but, um, yeah, I've, I've, I'm, I'm quite fortunate to, to be able to say that because, you know, in a, in a conference situation, if someone says, have you ever taken this drug? Most doctors, if they had asked being asked that question would say, Oh, I can't talk about personal experience or they might just lie and say, no, I can say, yes, I've taken LSD, ketamine, DMT, psilocybin and MDMA because they've all been delivered legally. So I'm quite fortunate in that respect. Yeah. And I guess it allows me to ask this question of, um, out of all of those substances, what are you most excited about in terms of therapeutic potential? Well, for me, it's MDMA all the way. It really is. I mean, 
the classic psychedelics are immensely powerful and the the the, the life changes you can make with those compounds lsd psilocybin are profound but they're also much trickier to work with clinically um it can go either way clinically and recreationally too absolutely yeah i mean there's a reason why you know the the number of people who use psychedelics like lsd and psilocybin is a fraction of the number that use mdma Mm. you know mdma is an easier going experience it's uh it's more clinically deliverable you don't really get a bad and trip on MDMA. You either get an experience or you don't, but you don't have a bad time. It's, it's, it's a positive felt affect. And so for me, that makes it a, a really, a much more useful clinical tool. But that's not to say that the, the classic psychedelics aren't immensely powerful. It's just um, that you, you certainly need to have, there's more caution with them. Hmm. Yeah, I think they're they're much more unpredictable. You know, I often uh, tell people I think of MDMA as an industrial strength heart opener. It's not been my experience that it never has that effect. So if we're talking about therapeutic use rather than consciousness exploration or visions or astral travel or all the other things that people explore with psychedelics, if we're focused in on healing and like interrelational healing, then I'm with you. I think MDMA is possibly the, the, the best substance to be using. Um, I wonder if you have worked with MDA, MDA at all. No, no. So there's a, in here in the UK, I'm not aware of any either non-clinical or well, there's definitely no clinical studies with MDMA here in the UK. And I'm not aware of anyone that's done any non-clinical work with MDMA on healthy subjects with MDA. Um, so no, I have no experience with that compound. Mm-hmm. It's also, it's also not, not by any means a, a popular recreational drug, certainly not in the UK. Um, I've, I've never heard of people using it or being offered it or, um, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not a popular thing. Is it, is it quite widespread in the States? Well, I'm in Canada. Um, in Canada? I'm hearing more about it in terms of uh, therapeutic use and people using uh, sassafras in kind of, uh, I don't know, a, a neo-shamanic ritual or context. Hmm. Uh, and it's my understanding that it's uh, maybe a more a gentle, gradual come on and less of a come down after. Yeah, and it's much longer acting as well, isn't it? Which, which doesn't make it such a useful clinical tool. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with, uh, my experience with MDMA is the come down can be pretty harsh and I can feel really terrible uh, the day after or even the next two days after. How do you guys deal with that in the clinical setting? So this is a great question that I always get asked, you know, what ravers call Blue Monday or Black Tuesday or Suicide Wednesday. <laughs> we don't see it. We do not really? see it. We don't see come downs at the end of the day, and we don't see any post-MDMA affect drop. We measure this cl- closely. Um, I, I telephone the patient every day for seven days after the MDMA and, and collect various mood scales. We just do not see it. Mm. And I have various theories about this. Um, and one of the things it highlights is we cannot make influences about clinical MDMA based on recreational ecstasy users, whatever they are. The way that, I don't know how it is in Canada, but the way people tend to take ecstasy in the UK 
um, <laughs> you know, they they go to the pub, they drink three pints, they go to a club, they drop a pill at midnight, they drink another three pints, they drop another pill at two, and drink another three pints, they drop another pill at six, they go back to someone's house, drink two bottles of wine, do lines of cocaine, do some amphetamine, smoke endless spliffs, maybe right. get you know, drink a cup of soup and have two hours sleep on the Sunday night. Then they go into work on Monday and Tuesday and they feel like crap and they go, oh man, it's my MDMA serotonin depletion. It's a bloody hangover, you know, it's a hangover. When they've, they've caned it all weekend, they've, they've had no sleep, they've taken loads of other drugs, the purity of the substance is variable, um, and, they, and they, of course they feel like crap. You know, when they take MDMA in our, in our clinic, they come along at nine o'clock in the morning, they've had a good night's sleep, they take the drug at half nine, they're up all day, they're back down to baseline by five in the evening, they have a good meal, they sleep well, and they feel great for the week. In fact, they present much more with a classic psychedelic week-long afterglow effect. People feel fab for the seven days afterwards. So we don't see a come down at the end of the day, and we don't see any post MDMA affect drop in the following week. So, and I think this concept of serotonin depletion, you know, it, it exists, it's a reasonable hypothesis, but we can't make inferences about that based on ravers because most people just don't take the drug in a way that there's so many confounding factors for why they feel like crap in the few days afterwards. Yeah. Well, that's great to hear that when all the protocols followed that it doesn't have such a negative effect on people or, or no negative effect. And yeah. so that's really great to hear. Well, we're at the end of our time now, and uh, I really appreciate this conversation with you. I think it's uh, really helped me better understand the work that you're doing and got me even more excited about the potentials, especially, like I said, with MDMA. I just think uh, moving forward, it's got so much potential, and there's no kind of cultural baggage attached to it and no kind of ecological uh, impression, you know, I think it's a really kind of clean substance to be using for psychotherapy. Yeah. Uh, just wondering like what you're up to now. I know that you just completed or are completing um, the alcohol addiction study with MDMA. Yeah. So we've, we've, we, we still got lots of patients in follow up up to nine months. Um, but we finished all the, the therapeutic part there. We're, we're no longer dosing anyone. Um, so we've got to finish the follow-ups and get that written up. And we are now starting this psilocybin study here with the same team in Bristol. Um, and then, well, I've got some very exciting things coming up. I'm hoping to be working, um, developing a multinational network of treatment centers. Um, and that's something that's very much uh, in the planning at the moment. Um, and what we're wishing to do with that new company is we're not going to be competitors to maps and compass um, we're not a drug development company or a pharma company we're a psychedelic infrastructure network company and we're going to be building an opening and training streams of of, of of centers across the world so when these drugs mdma and psilocybin gain approval in the next few years um you know, MAPS is due to get its approval late 2021, early 2022, and psilocybin's a few years behind that, then there'll be a network of psychedelic therapy centers set up and ready to go for those compounds to be fed into. So that's, that's kind of what I'm doing at the moment. Yeah, I, that's super exciting. 
it's been a long-term dream of mine to have these, uh, you know, um, kind of like shamanic community centers, something like that, where uh, we can support the healing of the community with all these alternate modes of therapy. And I think psychedelics as the, maybe a hub of that wheel of different modalities is uh, going to be really, really powerful. So I'll be following along with that. Cool. Now, if people want to follow along with you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I've got a website, um, www.drsessa.com, D-R-S-E-S-S-A.com. And I kind of post my papers on there and I post the podcasts and things on there. Um, it's not a great website. I've got to get it redone at some point, but that's kind of pretty up to date. I, I do talks all over the place, all over the world. I, you know, I'm at most of the major psychedelic conferences doing a talk these days. So, um, you can kind of catch up with me there or through Facebook, you know, I'll always post my new papers and where, when I'm about to do a talk. So yeah, that's the way to follow me. Great. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Brian. Good luck. Thanks, man. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or sharing it on social media. If you're looking for support on your medicine path, you can become a Patreon subscriber and have access to hours of yoga practice resources, podcast extras, and a lot more. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. If you'd like more personal support, you can book an online session with me at brianjames.ca. Thanks so much for listening. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. Until next time we meet on The Medicine Path. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.